All right, we are back, and I don't want to spend too much more time on the grim topic of uh, Middle Eastern politics, but I would like to quote before we go from Jimmy Carter's Palestine, Peace Not Apartheid. Said Carter in his summary, there are two interrelated obstacles to a permanent peace in the Middle East. One, some Israelis believe they have the right to confiscate and colonize Palestinian land and try to justify the sustained subjugation and persecution of increasingly hopeless and aggravated Palestinians. And number two, some Palestinians react by honoring suicide bombers as martyrs to be rewarded in heaven and consider the killing of Israelis as victories. Carter notes, in turn, Israel responds with retribution and oppression, and militant Palestinians refuse to recognize the legitimacy of Israel and vow to destroy the nation. The cycle of distrust and violence is sustained, and efforts for peace are frustrated. Notes Carter, the only rational response for this continuing tragedy is to revitalize the peace process through negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. But the U.S. has, in effect, abandoned this effort. It may well be that one of the periodic escalations in violence will lead to a strong influence being exerted from the international community to implement its roadmap for peace, and we can only hope so. I would note that I have limited direct experience in this area, but I did once visit Israel coming into the country through Jordan, which geographically meant that I had to pass through what is called the occupied territories, the land that was supposed to be Palestinian. I can tell you that it was a sobering experience. This was in 1998, and yet you could see on hillsides here and there Jewish settlements that had sprung up. My impression then was, and and still is, that this is not okay. And that was long before all of these concrete walls were set up to isolate the two populations from one another, and long before roads were put in place to enable Jewish settlers to drive from one settlement to the other. By the way, if you're Palestinian and you turn up one of these roads with the wrong license plate because there's one set of license plates for the Jewish population and another set of license plates for the Arab population, your car will be confiscated and you may be arrested. Does that seem reasonable? If you look at the conditions of Gaza as they have existed for the past many decades, you can understand why it was hateful groups like Hamas might arise. This is not in any way to justify their actions, their murderous actions in attacking Israeli citizens and killing 1,200 of them. But I dare say neither does that murderous action justify the incredible response that has taken place since. Said Noam Chomsky, Israel uses sophisticated attack jets and naval vessels to bomb densely crowded refugee camps, schools, apartment blocks, mosques, and slums to attack a population that has no air force, no air defense, no navy, no heavy weapons, no artillery units, no mechanized armor, no command and control, no army, and calls it a war. It is not a war. It is murder. And let us close with a quote from Caitlin Johnstone, who said some weeks back, it's so hard to say who's in the right in this conflict. On one side, you've got facts and evidence and nonstop raw video footage documenting massacres of civilians. But on the other side, you've got people calling you an anti-Semite if you disagree with them. It's so complicated. Despite saying that, I think that some of you listening are going to come away with a possible viewpoint that we are nevertheless being anti-Semitic. Well, I submit we are not. 
It is a fact that some of my best friends are Jewish. And I know I sort of wince when I say that because it seems like such a stereotypical thing to say in a circumstance like this, but it is true. One thing I'm certain of is that we're we're not going to all agree on what's going on over in the Middle East at present, but I think that uh, it's important for all of us to really try and make an effort to look at the big picture. At the moment, the big picture includes the fact that the Israeli government is talking about the people in Gaza going elsewhere. I mean, it seems hard to fathom, but that's what you hear from people in positions of responsibility, and you have to just say, good God, where are they to go? Anyway, I think we're going to have to leave it there and move on to something else, perhaps a little less depressing, although if we're going to talk about the history of race relations in the U.S., well, that ain't exactly a bundle of good cheer. It's Black History Month, so let's talk a little bit about black-white relations in the United States. We should start, I think, with um, an interview we conducted many years back about the book Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. It was a very interesting book. It was originally put together by Zora Neale Hurston back in the 1930s. She traveled to Alabama to interview the last living person to have been kidnapped in Africa and brought in chains to America. We highly recommend any interested person to check out that interview from our archives. Hurston uncovered a pretty remarkable tale when she sat down with this former slave. Born in about 1840, the man who became known as Cujo Lewis was captured as a teenager from his African village. In his telling, soldiers from the kingdom of Dahomey, present-day Benin, surrounded his town, beheaded some prisoners, preserved others to sell, And on the march to Dahomey, he watched the murder of his own king and saw the soldiers smoking the beheaded heads of his countrymen to preserve them. His captors took him to Oida, a town on the coast from which hundreds of thousands left in chains. The name Barracoon refers to the barracks in which the slaves were penned up. From the slave pen, Americans purchased them, loaded them onto the last slave ship that we know of to cross the Atlantic, and he was transported to Alabama. The slave trade had been restricted by then, so after they were secretly offloaded near Mobile Bay, the ship was torched. Hurston submitted Barracoon to publishers in 1931, but it was rejected. It was suggested that she change the, her subject's dialect into more conventional English. She insisted that it remain in dialect, and therefore it took 60 years for this book to finally see the light of day. It's a worthwhile read. We recommend it. If you don't have time to, to, to read the whole book, well, then check out our interview here at Radio Parallax. Not long ago, I chanced to, to catch a little snippet from uh, the Ken Burns special on the Civil War, and I was reminded of how much it irks me that Southern politicians and Southerners had, for years tried to reframe the Civil War, a war fought to eliminate the abomination of slavery in the U.S. as simply a war between the states. You know, some states had different standards than others, and that's really what it was about. And they're telling it was, you know, federal authority trying to tell the states what to do that led the war. Of course, what they were trying to tell them to do was to abandon slavery. Anyway, when it comes to civil war, one interesting aspect has always been uh, how it really got rolling and sort of a prelude to the war, famously, if you remember your history class, was the raid on Harper's Ferry by John Brown and other abolitionists. The Atlantic published an article by Drew Gilpin Faust about that raid in its December issue. 
In the piece titled The Men Who Started the War, the question was addressed of when can violence be justified? To reiterate a bit of the tale in case you don't know it, on October 16th of 1859, a year and a half before the attack on Fort Sumter, which really got the Civil War started, the white abolitionist John Brown set out to seize the federal arsenal in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, and distribute arms to enable the enslaved to claim their freedom. His effort ended quickly and ignominiously. Badly wounded, he was carried off to jail in nearby Charlestown to be tried and executed, as were a number of his followers. In a sense, though, his insurrection was really never put down. The piece does note also, I didn't realize this, that uh, the Union troops burned down the arsenal at Harper's Ferry in 1861 to keep it out of Confederate hands. Looking back on her early schooling, author Faust said, I was told he was a madman undertaking a scheme that was doomed to fail, a suicide mission. When I wrote about Brown for my first term paper in high school, that was the story I told. From 1859 onward, many observers, reporters, and later historians adopted the view that Brown was insane. And by the mid-20th century, when I was in school, it had become a widely held assumption among white Americans. Rather than a meteor anticipating or inaugurating the larger war that would end slavery, Brown became no more than an aberration. Violence was reduced to a mental health problem. The interpretation reassuringly diminished the moral force of Brown's actions and suggested that only madness could lead to dreams of overthrowing white dominance and black subordination. This message was intended to emphasize the strength and immutability of the racial hierarchies and remained in place well after slavery's end, surviving Reconstruction and enshrined in Jim Crow. It minimized the threat Brown posed and by implication all but removed him and his insistence on the moral evil of slavery from any place in the explanations of the Civil War's origins. The lost cause portrait of conflict fought by two honorable opponents who differed primarily on constitutional views about states' rights could remain intact and unchallenged. To this, I would reiterate, the Civil War was not about states' rights. And let's go back in time before the raid on Harper's Ferry to address something that I was quite unaware of, which was that the ninth vice president of the United States had a black wife. She was an enslaved woman, and it is somewhat unclear historically to what degree she um, was a voluntary participant in the marriage. Article in the Washington Post by Ronald G. Slater noted that her name was Julia Chin, and her role in Richard Mentor Johnson's life caused a furor when the Kentucky Democrat was chosen as Martin Van Buren's running mate in 1836. Noted the article, Johnson, a Kentucky congressman in the 1810s, couldn't legally marry Julia Chin. The couple exchanged vows at a local church with a wedding celebration organized by the enslaved people at his family's plantation in Great Crossing, Kentucky. As it happened, Chin died four years before Johnson took office as vice president, but because of the controversy over her, Johnson is the only vice president in American history who failed to receive enough electoral votes to be elected. The Senate, in fact, voted him into office. Now, it turns out that Johnson was elected as a Democrat to the state legislature in 1802 and to Congress in 1806. It said the folksy, handsome Kentuckian gained a reputation as a champion of the common man. Back home, it said he fathered a child with a local seamstress, but didn't marry her when his parents objected. 
In about 1811, Johnson, age 31, turned to Chin, age 21, who had been enslaved at Blue Spring Plantation since childhood. Johnson called Chin, my bride. A biographer wrote, his great pleasure was to sit by the fireplace and listen to Julia as she played on the piano forte, which is what we today call a piano. The couple had two daughters. Johnson gave his daughters his last name and openly raised them as his children. He became a national hero during the War of 1812 when he led a horseback attack on the British and their Native American allies. In 1819, quote, Colonel Dick, unquote, was elected to the U.S. Senate. While he was away in Washington for long periods, he left Chin, his wife, in charge of the 2,000-acre plantation and told his white employees they should act with the same propriety as if I were home, making his wife somewhat of a unique feature in Kentucky. In 1825, Chin and Johnson hosted the Marquis de Lafayette during his return to America. Anyway, in 1836, uh, Andrew Jackson's vice president, Martin Van Buren, decided to step up and run for president. Van Buren was described as a fancy dresser who had never fought in a war, so he picked Johnson as his running mate. And although it turned out Van Buren won that election, Johnson only had 147 electoral votes, one short of what he needed to be elected, because... Virginia's electors refused to vote for him. They couldn't vote for a guy that had a black wife, making that the only time Congress chose the vice president. And when you know, when Van Buren ran for re-election in 1840, Democrats declined to nominate Johnson at their Baltimore convention. It is the only time a party didn't pick any vice presidential candidate. Apparently, Johnson still ended up being the leading choice and campaigned around the country wearing a trademark red vest. Van Buren, however, lost to Johnson's former commanding officer, General William Henry Harrison. After Johnson passed away, his brothers laid claim to his estate at the expense of his surviving daughter, Imogene, who was married to a white man named Daniel Pence. A biographer wrote that at some point in the early 20th century, perhaps because of heightened fears of racism during the Jim Crow era, members of Imogene Johnson Pence's line, already living as white people, chose to stop telling their children that they were descended from the former vice president, Richard Johnson, and his black wife. But it was noted that in the late 20th century, the younger Pences, I believe no relation to the former vice president, by then in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, began discovering the truth of their heritage. And, and now we know about it, too. And speaking of Reconstruction, which we just made passing reference to, we need to delve a moment into that sad episode of American history. Well, not the Reconstruction per se as it started, but what became of it. Quoting from an article in The Economist from its December 19, 2020 issue, we have this. On April 13, 1873, a group of armed white men rode into Colfax, Louisiana, a town about 100 miles northwest of New Orleans. Including in their number were members of the Ku Klux Klan and Knights of the White Camellia, both terrorist groups devoted to maintaining white rule across the American South. They were coming to seize the courthouse, then occupied by black and white Republicans who claimed victory in a disputed election the year before. The economists felt the need to spell out that Republicans were the party of Abraham Lincoln and emancipation. Republicans called on their supporters, mostly of whom in Colfax were black, to defend them. The invaders were better armed and laid down an enfilade of cannon fire. Some of the defenders fled, they were pursued and shot to death. Around 70 retreated into the courthouse, which the whites set on fire. The courthouse's defenders extended from a window the sleeve of a shirt as a white flag. Emerging unarmed, 37 were taken prisoner. 
After dark, they and other prisoners were marched two by two from the courthouse, told they were going to be set free. They too were shot and left unburied. As many as 150 black Louisianans died that day. The Colfax Massacre, as it came to be known, which I'd never heard of, was not an isolated incident. In the late 1860s and early 1870s, racist terrorism swept across the South, targeting newly freed black Southerners and the whites believed to be helping them. This violence hastened the end of Reconstruction. Most historians define the period as beginning with the enactment of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, before the end of the Civil War, and ending when Rutherford Hayes withdrew federal support in 1877 as part of a political bargain that put him in the White House. And we've talked about the disputed election of 1876 on this program in the past and need to just, I think, briefly reiterate that 1876 marked the first of what would be several Republican Party thefts of the national presidential election. Democrat Sam Tilden won the popular vote and would have won in the Electoral College had not the Republicans found a loophole in the proceedings by virtue of their having a spy as head of the American Telegraph Company, who basically intercepted telegraph messages from Southern Democrats to, to Washington, saying that uh, saying the results in those states were not a slam dunk, although they were confident of victory. Seeing the possibility of holding up proceedings by claiming that the election was in dispute in three Southern states, the Republican Party eventually managed to engineer a phony baloney electoral victory by Rutherford Hayes of a count of 185 to 184. They did this by stealing the something like dozen electoral votes from three southern states. Very sad episode. But the worst part about it was the fact that the Democratic Party decided to give in to the electoral theft by saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let you win this election on the national level, and we're going to let you put Hayes in the White House. But what we want Hayes to do is then stop this Reconstruction nonsense in the South. Now, Rutherford Hayes succeeded into the presidency from Ulysses S. Grant. While President Grant was not about to let Southern Democrats reclaim the social system of the South that led to the Civil War, oh, admittedly, they weren't going to go back to actual out-and-out slavery, but everything short of that was what the, the Southern white Democrats wanted. So in a rather astounding jujitsu move, the Republican Party moved from being anti-slavery to being a not exactly anti-slavery party. Republicans have never gone back to actually advocating a return to slavery per se, but you will no doubt note, dear listener, if you look at an electoral map of the United States and how our state-by-state electoral college goes, these states which used to be run by Southern pro-slavery Democrats are now all red. And as part of that tragedy, we have to look at something that took place in 1964, which I'm sad to report I remember all too well, in 1964, there was a nationwide effort, backed primarily by Democratic Party operatives, to restore voting rights to black people living in the South. They had them during Reconstruction, but they were quickly taken away. So it was that we needed 90 years to try and get back to where black folks could cast ballots. I think it's fair to say that apartheid is not a word that uh, you could apply only to South Africa or perhaps uh, 
perhaps more recently to Israel slash Palestine, but we very definitely had it right here in the good old U.S. of A. It's hard to imagine it now, but I distinctly remember watching Southern politicians, and if you were elected to office as late as the 1960s, it's pretty much guaranteed you were a Democrat as part of the pushback against this Republican effort to free the slaves. The resentment lasted a long time, but you would see people on, uh, on Meet the Press who were openly segregationists. I would invoke the name of George Corley Wallace, a man who ran for president in 1968 and carried five southern states. The then Alabama governor in the 1960s did everything possible to uh, slow down or stop the integration of Alabama's universities. It just wasn't that long ago, people. Back in 1964, a terrible, tragic news story emerged out of southern Mississippi, a town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three young civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schroener, disappeared. They were down in Mississippi trying to get black people registered to vote against local white opposition, and at one point they disappeared. Everybody feared the worst, and indeed, 40 days later, their bodies were found. As feared, they had been murdered. Terrific article, looking back on this subject, was in The Atlantic, piece by Nate Palmer, May 2022 issue. And although they made a movie about this later, I think titled Mississippi Burning, and tried to portray the FBI as, <laughs> as aggressively pursuing justice down in Mississippi, it was just largely a fabrication. The FBI dragged its feet on this case. The president personally had to galvanize J. Edgar Hoover into action. And the sad part about it is everybody knew the local authorities had done this. The article notes that a federal trial in 1967 on this case resulted in seven convictions, eight not guilty verdicts, and three mistrials. But the 18 defendants had been charged with civil rights violations, not murder. Only the state government could have brought murder charges, and Mississippi had not pursued the option. None of the defendants served more than six years in prison. Notes the piece, it had been an open secret that the Klansmen and Baptist preacher Edgar Ray Killen had played a significant role in the murders. In 1967, he was one of the 11 men who got off scot-free. A woman on the all-white jury said she couldn't bring herself to convict a preacher. In 2004, he was still alive and living, in, and living nearby. For months, local activists, known as the Philadelphia Coalition, listened to stories of residents who told them about how their mother and father had been beaten in church, churches burned down. And in May of 2004, the coalition made a public appeal at City Hall for the state to level criminal charges. And the coalition's efforts paid off. In June 2005, Ray Killen was finally prosecuted by the state of Mississippi, and he was sentenced to 60 years in prison for manslaughter. He died just shy of his 93rd birthday while incarcerated at Parchment, the state penitentiary. I'm glad that happened, but very sorry that justice was not served and that nobody was ever tried or convicted for the murder of those civil rights workers. Here's a disturbing addendum to this story about Philadelphia, Mississippi. When running for president in 1980... Ronald Reagan decided to launch his campaign in a rural community. And oddly enough, 
he chose Philadelphia, Mississippi to do so. And in launching the Reagan campaign, he made some veiled references to how important it was that individuals be able to, uh, you know, stand up for what they think is right. And yes, the marketing of the Republican Party to Southern racists has been very successful. Yes, it's, it's really sort of painful to contemplate that Ronald Reagan went down to Philadelphia, Mississippi, a place where the murder of three civil rights workers created a national uproar back in 1964 and launched a presidential campaign with a speech about states' rights which the Atlantic characterized as a loud dog whistle not far in distance or time from the Freedom Summer murders. The Republican Party should be ashamed of itself, but, but when it comes to uh, introspection and perhaps being ashamed about its bad behavior, well, I'd say that uh, that looks entirely absent from the current lineup of the Republican Party of America. The only major political party that I'm aware of around the world that insists that global warming is a hoax, possibly the only major political party that I can think of around the world where the people running for high office deny that evolution is a biological fact. And you know, I like to end all this with some sort of a jab at the Republicans that's amusing on some level. Let me take a look here. So let's see if we can pull up a few quotes from Barry Goldwater, a guy who admittedly was at times, let's just say, a bit of a jerk, but also at the bottom of it did have a sense of humor. Said Barry Goldwater, I don't necessarily vote a straight ticket in my own state because there are sometimes Democrats out there who are better than Republicans. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Said the 1964 Republican Party nominee for president, no matter what you do, be honest. That sticks out in Washington. And finally, if they chased every man or woman out of this town who was shacked up with somebody else or got drunk, there wouldn't be any government left in the Capitol. There's a tear in my beard Cause I'm crying for you, dear And I think that more than does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We might have a brand new show for you a week from now. We might not. But either way, we will see you in a couple weeks. I'm Douglas Everett. For better or worse, the host of Radio Parallax. We like to think usually it's for the better. Usually. I'm gonna keep drinking until I'm petrified. And then maybe these tears will leave my eyes. There's a tear in my beard. Cause I'm crying for you